Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 10 of the Day Zero podcast. Uh, we're back. Uh, we we did a stream a little bit, you know, a few minutes ago, but uh, uh, Z decided uh, I shouldn't yeah, I, talk in that stream. I so. just figured it would be a monologue. Um, figured if we just gave people kind of half, you know, the, the better half of the stream. Uh, you know, this week, it looks like it's just going to be the two of us. Uh, yeah, but yeah no, so, no, I so I mean I'm sorry about the audio issues there it looks like it was just a OBS issue uh, but okay. I mean hopefully if you know if people aren't hearing if nobody's hearing Spectre or you're not hearing me or you know there's some weird break <laughs> mention it in chat so we know uh, yeah yeah and thank well, you like, we um, would like to listen RTK. back to it while we're streaming but like <laughs> it really confuses you <laughs> so yeah, no, you can't really listen to yourself while you talk. Um, and there's actually like studies into that. There's actually um, it's I think they call it, like a voice jammer, talk jammer, something like that. I remember hearing about that. Yeah, where they'll play back your audio to you, but at a slight delay, and it'll just cause you to start stuttering and everything. Um, yeah, there was some tool made to like weaponize that. I think it was like, like yeah, Japan or something. Yeah, I remember hearing about that. But yeah, uh, let's just jump right right back into it there. It was uh, Frida. Uh, 12.5 release was the first topic. The Frida um, release, yeah. Yeah, which, I mean, it's not a huge release here, but uh, the big thing with this is that V8 is kind of back into Frida. And just for anybody not familiar with Frida, it's essentially a it's dynamic analysis tool. Use a, I mean, there's a lot of different ways you could use it. It's very general purpose. Essentially, you inject Frida into an application, and from that point, you can kind of instrument the function so you can uh, modify arguments to a function. Like, you can hook the functions, modify arguments. You can modify return values. You can modify what the function does. You can do whatever you want. You just inject the Frida in the JavaScript engine, and there you go. Uh, so big news with this one is that V8 has come back um, after they've been using duct tape as their default engine for quite a while. Um, with V8, they had moved away from it just because V8 required uh, rewrite execute permissions. And now uh, with V8 no longer requiring that, but instead just flipping between read write and read execute, uh, they're able to use it again on platforms that don't support uh, that setup. So, yeah. So we were kind of having a a little bit of a discussion on that, and I think we'll bring it back up. Uh, I think it's interesting the idea of instead of having full rewrite execute pages, they flip the write and execute bit back and forth. Yeah, um, like it's definitely tangential to the Frida release, but that definitely caught my eye. I wasn't aware of that movement with VA. Like they were uh, moving away from having RWX pages to flipping that bit back and forth. I mean, it is a bit of an exploit mitigation. I mean, it's not the biggest thing in the world. It's not going to stop every attack or anything, but just reduces the attack surface a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the main way I could think of that uh, this might be helpful is you might have to, like, race how that happens so that you get your right in that window and whatnot. But, I mean, yeah, I don't think it'll be too helpful as an exploit mitigation, but it is definitely, like, an interesting point with how they do JIT. And... It even says here they can apparently even now run without JIT entirely. Uh, so that that's, you know, that's a pretty substantial thing in terms of how Frida works, right? Well, it, it's not huge just because you've had... I mean, JavaScript is interpreted, so it's not... Yeah. 
crazy. The, the biggest thing that changes is just if you write kind of the complicated agents that have multiple files, you previously had to use uh, free to compile, uh, which will kind of build it all into one JavaScript file that it can work with. Um, I mean, in theory, you could actually do like some concatenation. You don't have to use free to compile, but you essentially need to make into one. Now, because it can just kind of load the files in there, um, you essentially don't need to uh, run the compiler anymore. Um, still probably will, especially if you're working with uh, TypeScript or something, not just JavaScript, or not just the yeah. default there. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the big news with this release. Uh, the other thing, Stalker running on ARM64, uh, which is basically their, like, they they refer to it as the per thread code tracer. Uh, you can you can do a lot of the same stuff using uh, just kind of the interceptor calls that Frida already has. Um, Stalker just kind of makes it really easy to do that on a particular thread, and then you just set up your filter and off you go with that. Uh, but yeah, so this works on ARM sixty four, which is basically your iOS devices. Yeah. Uh, iOS and Android. And that that's another interesting point of this uh, article is that it seems to be more focused on like iOS jailbreak, uh, like post jailbreak stuff. Um, yeah, they, they mentioned, mentioned here it a lot. The iOS Chimera jailbreak is also now supported. Uh, so yeah, it seems like they're trying to, to, you know, push more into like the mobile stuff with the uh, ARM64 support. So, yeah, well, so the, the ARM64 support isn't new. Like, Frida's run on ARM64 for a while. Uh, that said, like, they are definitely doing something with iOS here. Like, they make mention of iOS a ton during this, uh, or in these release notes. Yeah. Uh, like, that That obviously seems to have been a big motivator for a lot of the changes that they did. Um, the other big thing is just module load on Android 8. Uh, previously, it basically just been returning null because of uh, some module load, if you're not familiar, is essentially just allowing you to load your uh, shared libraries uh, from within Frida. Uh, so DL load on Android would do some extra security checks uh, that weren't really compatible with trying to load shared libraries from Frida. So on Android 8 plus, it would just return null for a while. Uh, they fix that. Don't have details on exactly how, um, but I just mentioned there's a brand new JavaScript API that takes care of these platform-specific quirks that allow it to work again. I'm assuming it might even be related to the VA change, but I'm not entirely sure about that. Either way, just kind of figured we'd mention, you know, hey, new Freedom version out there. Definitely a useful tool that I've used a number of times. Um, not so much for iOS jailbreaks, but it's just a useful tool, you know, inject into an application. And um, I use it a lot for dealing with network traffic because you can kind of hit it before uh, it's gone through like HTTPS. So you're able to deal with the traffic without needing to worry about uh, SERP pinning or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Unlike you, I, I haven't really used this tool before, but I'll, I'll keep an eye on it. And, you know, if a use case comes up where I'll need a tool like this, then I'll I'll definitely like, you know keep it in mind. Um, yeah, and I think we've talked yeah. about before on the stream too. Yeah, yeah, we we have. I forget exactly which episode, but I remember we did talk about it. 
Yeah. Uh, so we just figured we'd bring that update to it as it is. Uh, it does seem to be a fairly substantial update in terms of quality of life improvements and whatnot. Uh, and the other release that also happened, uh, you said it was a little yeah. bit older. It looks like it's a it, month ago. or like, Yeah, that's when the commits were made. I don't commits. know. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. I saw this this morning and I thought it looked interesting. If it's old, it's old, but I haven't seen this before, so it's news to me. And we've talked about crypto of a good number of times. From talking about like that Ethereum fuzz, like the VM fuzzer, to just yeah. uh, smart contract issues. Like we've definitely talked about crypto before. This one in particular is a damn vulnerable crypto wallet. Uh, no relation, as far as I'm aware, to like damn vulnerable web app. But yeah. it's the same idea. You've got a vulnerable crypto app, or sorry, wallet application. Uh, for those of you not familiar, the wallet application essentially it just stores your public and private keys for like the blockchain, does some blockchain interactions, um, and just kind of manages that for you rather than you needing to uh, interact with the blockchain yourself. Um, so I mean, it's I'm not sure. I'm assuming they tried to be fairly realistic in the setup with this one, just given how they it, described it like some it. effect. Yeah, uh, like all the wallet addresses and stuff, it seemed like it was very... Um, well, so, I mean, that's kind of a given just because it sets up the local Ethereum blockchain. So it's going to have specific addresses. Got to tell you about that. Um, like, I'm not sure how often the wallet applications will have like a little web API running like locally along with the desktop app. I'm not sure if that's realistic or not. It's definitely realistic in terms of how a lot of applications are being built now. So it wouldn't surprise me. I just don't actually know, so I can't comment on uh, how realistic that actually is. Uh, that said, yeah. it's got a uh, three core components. Desktop application, which is built using Electron, and then a web app with Vue. Um, a web API that communicates with Express. I mean, SQLite probably isn't what's really being used, but that doesn't matter. It's a back-end database. You know, it's SQL. The fact it's not like uh, PG SQL or something doesn't matter. SQLite's close enough for for this. And then a local Ethereum blockchain using Truffle. Yeah. So, you know, in the in the previous uh, attempt of the stream, I was just talking a little bit how, uh, like Z said, we're we're mentioning smart contracts uh, quite a bit in the in the past in the show. And uh, I was talking about personally maybe wanting to look into it just because it's such a unique area um in terms of like uh like types of bugs and stuff you can get into and types of exploits and um this seems like a, a good foothold to like break into it um and I've, I've always really liked these types of projects they're almost like a ctf but they're they they seem more accurate to real world scenarios but i guess it depends like you were saying damn vulnerable web app isn't really too yeah i mean i'll you know, make the point again uh since only those that were listening to me monologue uh, would have heard <laughs> it. Um, like, I mean, damn vulnerable web app, it literally has like a page that's basically like, here's your SQL injection page, and you can set like different levels of difficulty and stuff. I mean, it's it's not real world, and I don't know what this application looks like. As I said, I just saw this this morning. I haven't played with it at all yet. Uh, yeah. Maybe this app looks a little bit better, just kind of pretends to be a real application. That said, these things in general... They're concentrated vulnerabilities. Maybe you don't have to hunt for them as hard as you necessarily 
would in a real application. But I mean, it's somewhere for you at the very least to play around with certain attacks. And this thing has a bunch of attacks. And it's got kind of your classic web bones, your SQL injection. Um, it mentioned that it has like a 2FA bypass. Uh, but then it's also got things like just, you know, because this is an Electron application, if you get cross-site scripting in there, you can pivot that towards uh, remote code execution. Uh, so yeah. it has that in here. Uh, so it's got things that are attacking the desktop application itself. It's got things that are attacking the web API, and it's got smart contract vulnerabilities, which are attacking the Ethereum blockchain. Um, so it it has vulnerabilities upon every, or within every component here. So like they're definitely a good place to just kind of play around, practice, and try things out. Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, uh, one thing I could kind of compare this to is the uh i i can't remember the exact name but there was basically there's a really good linux kernel um vulnerable driver out there uh, i think it's literally called that pretty much linux kernel vulnerable driver and the kind of idea of it is very similar to this in that it's the the vulnerabilities themselves are very artificial um some of the ones that are in there you likely won't find in the linux kernel or if you do it's you know there's a lot of complexity with figuring out how to get there and whatnot but you're exploiting it in a real environment. So the vulnerability research isn't as helpful. It's not as realistic. But the actual exploitation, you're dealing with uh, like the environment more. You know what I mean? So that's where I kind of um, see this one being more of a realistic footing. Yeah, and I mean, that's the benefit of these. And just uh, since you mentioned CTFs, like that's one of the benefits of CTFs is like you're doing an actual exploit, even if the situation is contrived. You're still learning something about the exploit development process, uh, you know, especially with these web apps and stuff. It's you're still you're getting something out of it. It's very concentrated, very focused on just one area. Um, so, like, this is absolutely useful. I think it's a really interesting idea to build like a damn vulnerable uh, crypto wallet, especially like I haven't seen any other vulnerable crypto wallets or anything looking specifically at that. At the same time, like you can break down a lot of the attacks of being the same thing. Like it is a desktop application, Electron and View. It's got a lot, of, or it's going to have a lot of the same vulnerabilities across just desktop applications built on Electron. It's just that's what it's going to be. Um, it's got a web API. It's going to be a lot of those web things, and then, or it's going to be a lot of those web vulnerabilities. And then it's got smart contracts in there, like the Ethereum blockchain. So it's going to be those smart contracts. Like you could break this down. Uh, so in that sense, like there are other resources, but just putting it all together, you know, it's one of those places where it's like if you're interested in this specific area, here's an all-in-one for you to check out to play around with. If you're interested specifically in looking at crypto issues, this is one of those areas you can look at, just because it is like a crypto wallet is some that. Maybe I'm not too interested, and I'll admit I'm not super interested in attacking crypto wallets, but I can imagine somebody who is a lot more interested in crypto and interested in security, they can try something like this. Yeah, for sure. I mean, like I said, I'm kind of interested in it. I may check it out, but at the same time, it, it is kind of a... Uh, it Just like a complicated area to break into, a bit, I guess. Like, you have to learn a lot about how crypto works obviously well that the only so, crypto part of this though are the blockchain uh sorry the mm -hmm. smart contract vaults you know you break the desktop and the web aspect of this are 
the only crypto thing about is the fact that it's a pretend crypto wallet. But like you could break into those parts of it with a ton of other resources. Yeah, but I mean, even attacking some of the other systems, like I know in the past we talked about attacking the uh, gas system they have. Like I was thinking about like more stuff like that. Where you but have that's, to that's still that. in the smart. I know that's where you're thinking. I'm just saying like there's more to this than just that. That's just smart contract issues. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll uh, we'll move on from that. And uh, you you really like cats. So uh, I can see why you brought up this link. Well, I really like the original <laughs> domain for this. Yeah, I we couldn't get it up, could we? Or it well, it redirects to this, but um, essentially, uh, Fangry Cat is or the original domain. I just kind of brought it up there without putting it in there, but is the emoji cat faces there, or angry cat faces? <laughs> uh, yeah. For AFM. And they actually say here, like, how do you say the name of this vulnerability? You drop down to they the actually bottom. Have a section on that? I didn't see that section. Yeah, they because they talk about the attack, and they I'm sure they talk about. Uh, uh yeah. Oh, the right vulnerability. Here. How do you pronounce this vulnerability name? There is no phonetic transcription of this specific sequence of repeated emojis. The pronunciation is open to interpretation. Right. There we go. Oh, I mean, we chose angry cat. Yeah. Yeah. We chose to communicate that through, through visual representation of symbols rather than words. So I feel like this is always just making fun of all the named vulnerabilities that are coming out. Yeah. That said, we might as well mention what this says. This is actually reasonably serious. It's uh, in Cisco iOS. Uh, it's two vulnerabilities. Uh, one is to bypass their trust anchor module, which is essentially they've got their secure boot and then they've got this trust anchor module, which is like their um, secure execution area. It's a specialized hardware that's meant to be secure. It runs the very first instructions that do the firmware integrity checking. It is the root of all trust for the iOS. Um, and by iOS, I'm talking about Cisco iOS, not iPhone. Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is <laughs> remote command injection as root. Yeah. So I was going to mention, uh, so they, they mentioned their first attack, like their, their you know, main attack is uh, an attacker with root privileges on the device can modify the contents of the FPGA anchor bitstream. Uh, which is stored unprotected in memory. That's how they they list it here. Um, and when I first read this, I was like, okay, I mean, that's interesting as a persistence vector, but you need root privileges, which seems like, you know... I mean, you still probably, shouldn't like, be able to get around yeah. the trusted platform. Like, I mean, yeah, root, root is definitely lower on the chain of trust. It just seems like, a, you know... Kind of, yeah, it's an issue, but, you know, but then when you see that they also chained it with a remote ca command injection, which can, you know, uh, execute these commands as root, then it's like, okay, now I see a little bit more of why this is more yeah, of a major Yeah, that issue. definitely makes this a, a lot more serious of an issue is the fact that there is the code execution or code injection. I don't think they really talk too much. Maybe you want the bug reports. They have a bunch of bug reports, like Cisco reports actually gives some details on it um but given the way that they talk about it i presume this is also unauthenticated 
Yeah, they. I'm. I'm pretty sure. I don't know if they mention it specifically, but it's definitely implied with the way it's worded that it can be executed remote or like uh, exploited Rem- remotely. Yeah, like it doesn't seem like just by the seriousness they present this as, despite the cat. Um, it seems like this is something that is an unauthenticated command injection. If it's not, if you need to be able to like log in as root on the device, then that definitely reduces it a bit. Uh, like reduces the severity quite a bit. But I don't know, given the way they talk about, I'm assuming that's not the case. Yeah, and the other thing I should bring up too is that this is a hardware issue. So at least the persistence vector, it doesn't seem like there's an easy software patch. Uh, the remote command injection, I imagine, can probably be fixed with a security patch, but the like the the main one where they can you know uh break that chain of trust from root i think that's one where it can't really be fixed without a hardware revision so that's another thing that kind of adds on to yeah although they do mention that there are patches here so again there's definitely some missing information uh but they do mention that there are patches from cisco about or for these issues yeah yeah i mean it's just yeah so it's hard to say like i don't know what what type patch they would have done or if their patch is only really dealing with the code execution aspect yeah they're not really too clear on that especially with the uh like they talk quite a bit about the persistence vector but with the remote command injection they kind of keep that hidden away they don't really talk about it too much in the article so yeah well it seems like they had initially uh written this up before they had the command injection and then they kind of got the command injection and just tossed that on yeah exactly yeah as like an afterthought so nonetheless, yeah. i mean if, if you run cisco devices you should probably update uh, what was that? Sorry, can you just repeat that last sentence? Yeah, if you run Cisco devices with iOS here, you should probably update. Yeah, yeah. Moral of the story. Uh, you know what? I think I should mention this will probably be the first podcast where we have an emo- an emoji domain in our description. So I think that well, unfortunately, because it's actually the Thangry cat, I don't think this cat domain will be in there. No, maybe it will. I mean, I could always add it. Yeah, I mean, let's let's just put the emoji domain, make it a breakthrough. <laughs> um, but yeah, that you know, that's that pretty much sums up the, uh, you know, vulnerabilities or the like the releases and stuff uh, for that. And we'll, well move into the more bigger news. I mean, the, this uh, was kind of big news, but yeah, I think the big news of the week, the big big but- news. I mean, it, maybe it's not. I mean, the Windows, we're, we'll be talking about it later, but there is also a Windows vulnerability that's pretty big news for the last week. But yeah, the microarchitectural data speculation attacks. Or data sampling attacks. But poor Intel can't catch a break. <laughs> okay, so, I mean, I was going to mention this later, but did you notice the timeline on this? Like this, the, uh, the core, like the riddle... Issue or was it followed? One of them, I think it might have been followed. Actually, I don't remember which one, but it was found like within a couple months of uh, the Spectre and Meltdown stuff. That might have been Zombie Load, um, because I remember Fallout. Well, Riddle is was... Zombie Load. 
Well, I'm yeah, but I'm talking specifically about the zombie load attack because that one they said they had a POC sent on March 28th, 2018, which was around when the uh, uh, which was around when meltdown and stuff was happening, wasn't it? It was, it was around that time well, last year, I think. They have the timeline here, and I mean, they definitely don't mention having the proof of concept from. Um. Uh, okay, so I guess uh, the MD someone, the uncashable memory, actually is right there. I actually missed that. I thought it was uh, just as I was glancing over this, I just saw meltdown. But okay. Yeah. So that well, is the first I, I one. I didn't see but... it from there. I'm. I saw it from the. I read the zombie load white paper, and that's where I saw the. Uh, yeah, I mean, there's like so the, many domains the for details. these things. <laughs> Not enough. There needs to be more. <laughs> but I mean, my whole point was like. You know, this wasn't that f that far off from when uh, Meltdown was actually... Uh, I'm just actually looking up. Um. Yeah, so while you do that, I, I will clarify. So there was basically three main attacks, from what I could gather. Uh, or four. Based on... Was there four? Four attacks. There's four CVs for it. Okay, so the three I'm, that I found was the zombie load. Uh, there was uh, Riddell, which uh, Rogue and Flight Data load, and the Fallout paper, but I didn't see... What was the fourth one? The fourth one is actually this uh, Meltdown UC one. The Uncashable oh, Memory, um, MD Sum. Oh, okay, um, so I that's didn't actually, actually the fourth. see that. Well, so a lot of them are really... Or several of them are really similar, so... First of all, I will say there's a Red Hat video out there that does a really good job of kind of describing this and gives a high-level analogy of what the idea is of these attacks. Um, their analogy is, imagine you just, like, moved into an apartment building. Um, and, you know, you're in, you know, apartment 11 or something, and you get mail that's addressed to the old tenant. You can then, without opening that mail, you can, like, shine a flashlight and you can figure out some of the information in that mail. And if you get enough letters, you're able to figure out, like, private information. Like, you know, if they got a bunch of things from their bank, like, you could work out their banking information. Um, you know, just repeating over many letters to get the fuller details. And I think that that's a fair analogy to how some of these attacks work. So I think the easiest one to kind of jump into is the fallout attack which is the store buffer uh okay. essentially all of these kind of just deal with different buffers okay, uh so, so do you actually have the white paper for that one i don't have the white paper open um okay i wasn't going to jump into the white paper i was just going to talk about it okay so i, I do have some information from some of the white papers so maybe i'll cover that after you give like a, a well so i do have the link to the white paper um i can open okay. it up here for you okay uh, yeah, but... it's, it's not too important because I, I just wanted to brush over some like interesting points I found from it. But yeah, oh, I've got the link right here. But uh, just to kind of go into the attack. So Fallout with the, as I said, they're all kind of attacking different buffers essentially. Uh, they're used like kind of like the microcode level. Um, and of course, there's speculation. Like as we were kind of mentioning earlier. Intel just kind of, you know, keeps getting hit by these issues, and they held on to this one for a while. Yeah. So, yeah, Spect I actually just pull up here. Spectre looks like it was announced in, like, March 15th. Oh, no, that... Okay, so that's 2017. 
Wow, was uh, that was, longer? I don't know if it was announced yet. I don't think it was announced until like January or something. Okay. Um. Either way, this isn't that long off. Like it was definitely in 2018, I believe, when we got the public announcements, and yeah, now we're getting some more things. Uh, definitely kind of pointing towards some more systemic intel issues which i'll maybe get to later anyway enough bouncing around there uh talking about fallout uh tagging the store buffer oh uh, essentially you've got these data stores that are uh, basically you tell it in microcode it'll tell it, like you know store this address or store this value um and you can essentially get the intel processors to speculate based on values uh, that are in the cache or in that buffer, it'll go and look like if you want it to uh, store an address, you can go tell it like, hey, go store this address, store this value. If it sees that it's already in the cache or go get this value, uh, whatever, um, it'll just return it from the cache, allowing the processor to speculate on it. Yeah. Yeah, so the main like thing I found in the paper that it mentions of why that happens is, you know, when you write to a memory address... Um, the virtual address that you write to is not the real address, right? It needs to translate that to a physical address through the translation tables and all that stuff. And then it needs to also attain, obtain a, a write barrier to that location so that it has exclusive access to it. So to prevent stalling, it kind of records that address and what it needs to write there into this store buffer. And then uh, this mechanism that they call the write transient forwarding or WTF, uh, quite quite creative there. Um, they use that mechanism to um, try to do a partial match, and then it'll determine if the CPU load will fail, and that's what they try to hit uh, with the with the attack. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that's a, a more technical explanation than I was quite going with, but um. I mean, okay. essentially, so I just no, to no, that, that's that totally I fine. I think it, you know, I want to get that. I just didn't have all the technical information. Um, okay. That's it. the other attacks, like the, I don't know how it's supposed to be said, but uh, riddle or zombie load. Um, yeah. Those ones tend to deal, or those two deal with another buffer, the line fill buffer or uh, load ports, or the other one. Uh, technically, yeah, I guess. Few. Yeah, so the load port data sampling is technically another issue, but they included it under uh, the... So the team that found zombie attack is different than the team that's working on the Riddle paper. I'm just going to say Riddle, because that sounds right. Uh, well, they do actually make a pun, I think, in it. Like, here's a Riddle for you, and they say oh, our okay. ideal. So I think that's the proper way of saying it. Um, but I yeah. did want to, like, before we move on to that, I would like to just kind of sum up the fallout attack because oh, I yeah, thought it was kind of interesting too. Um, so they talked about like the, like how they wrote a, like a proof of concept to, to, to show that it was, uh, exploitable. And they basically had two components. They had a kernel module that attempted to do like a kernel write to a page and then they had a user land program that was like their attack program. So their user land program would use mprotect to uh, revoke access to a page. And then they'd use the kernel module to force a write. And then when it returns, the attacker would uh, try to trigger a faulty load 
and then they were able to use that to like leak kernel data. So I thought that was a pretty interesting uh, like way to attack it. And they basically, this POC can completely obliterate ASLR, uh, kernel ASLR, because uh, they mentioned in their paper that their attack can recover the like a kernel address with 100% accuracy in a quarter of a second. So... Yeah. 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 One thing I did want to bring up is... Uh, I'm sorry, I'm just going to repeat what I had just said because I was accidentally muted still there. <laughs> Um, Why did your audio cut out? Yeah, I well, I was muted. I had muted myself. Oh, okay. uh, anyway, I was just I just mentioned that, uh, you know, there are some very real attacks being done with this already. One example being a host, uh, or a virtual machine reading host information, and I think the zombie low team themselves just do something where you kind of detect what web pages somebody's browsing on. Uh, so, I mean, like, you know, it's a very real attack and very exploitable right now. Yeah. I did want to say, though, um, like, a lot of these attacks, you do need some form of, you know, like, uh, unprivileged code execution on the machine. And that is a, a, that is a notable requirement, because I remember, uh, like, Meltdown and stuff like that, uh, one of the big things that made it so scary was that it could be attacked from the browser. And... For a, for a lot of speculative attacks now, that's not really uh, possible because browsers have, like, browser devs have been doing a lot to try to mitigate how exploitable speculative execution bugs are from the browser because they, like, limit their timing, uh, the timing information they provide it and stuff like that. Yeah, like um, reducing the timing accuracy and all of that, yeah. Yeah, though there is... Um, there is one of these attacks that actually talks about how it can be hit from the browser. So we can, we can talk about that when we get to it. I think uh, Riddle actually uh, is the one that does yeah. that. Well, I mean, Riddle includes the other three issues. Yeah, but they were basically talking about how um, like it normally yeah, it can do it be... from the browser. Yeah. Yeah, like normally you couldn't do it from the browser, but Riddle's saying they were able to, like the the authors of that paper were saying they were able to do it because uh, of web ASM, <laughs> which is funny because, like, uh, we always kind of joked about like the security implications of letting like web ASM and stuff like that. So there's a there's already one right there. So I thought I'd bring that up. So yeah, I mean. Some of them, some of the attacks aren't very practical, but some of them definitely are. Like that one that I was just talking about with Fallout, where they were able to recover the kernel location. Um, that's a very practical attack that can be chained. Um, uh, the next one, do you want to talk about Zombie Load next? Because I remember you were talking a little bit about it, so I think... Well, as I kind of say, though, like, that is the only thing. That's, there's Fallout and Riddle and Zombie Load. Like, Riddle includes Zombie Load, and everything else falls under Riddle, so... Well, yes, um, but they are different I think attacks. That, well, 
No, Riddle include like the zombie load attack is the line fill buffer from Riddle. Oh, uh, yeah. like it, it's the same attack. It's just uh, Riddle includes more and is from a different team. This just has to do with how Intel kept people in the dark. So the team that uh, found Zombie Load wasn't aware of the uh, team that did Riddle, and the Microsoft intern that found, uh, you know, this first the the Linefeld buffer ratio first, or maybe I think yeah, I think he was first to find it. It didn't even know about the team that did the Riddle paper. Uh, yeah. Although they met months ago, and like that's kind of settled, but you know, so it it's a little bit confusing here. Yeah, so when I read the two different paper, like the riddle paper and the zombie load paper, there were actually different attack strategies. So that's why well, I was there are different. There are different attack strategies because riddle includes three different attacks. Zombie load yeah. though is one of the attacks from the riddle paper. Yeah. So one thing that's in common with all of these is um, they use them in a few ways to defeat like uh, a lot of different permission barriers so pretty much all of them could violate the user land and kernel space boundary to leak data between them and sometimes even uh write arbitrary kernel data i think that was i think that was riddle uh, that they could do that with uh, from the riddle paper not from the zombie load paper um and yeah so that was the big one was the user land and kernel and the other one was like uh vm uh and uh Intel S SGX, I think it's called SGX. Yeah, am I saying that right? SGX. Yeah, yeah. So definitely some very interesting um, attacks. But getting into the less practical one, I remember you mentioned um, they had one, you know, proof of concept exploit where they leaked twenty six bytes of the uh, etc shadow file, but it took like twenty four hours to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean. Uh, and another attack like that was they had a, another one where you could leak arbitrary kernel memory, um, but it was only if SMAP wasn't enabled, which it probably is on most modern systems. And it took 12 minutes to leak one page of data. So it was like... Yeah, some of these so, take a while. Yeah, so there's there's definitely some attacks that are kind of silly that I can't really see being used in a like weaponized scenario but there are some where it's definitely practical to try to pull it off so overall you know speculative execution again back at it again yeah well I mean so I kind of wanted to touch on the fact this is Intel AMD does the speculative execution so AMD though uh, so I was kind of interested, just like, why is this only impacting Intel? What's Intel doing different? I was going to ask that. And yeah. essentially, so I mean, CPU design, like this is definitely a lower level than I'm familiar with. So a lot of stuff that I'm kind of getting an understanding of is still reasonably new to me. But um, essentially, Intel will speculate across different security barriers. So it'll just speculate and assume, you know, if it gets, the, like, it'll do the security checking while it's speculating. Whereas AMD just has a hard stop if it hits or, like, it'll never be allowed to access this. The press will never be allowed to access. It just won't speculate on it at all. It just has kind of that flat stop return. And that's why AMD, one, doesn't quite have the same performance uh, or doesn't necessar necessarily have the same performance. It's just because it won't 
speculate at the same times. Essentially, that's what comes down to is AMD just doesn't speculate across those security boundaries like Intel does. Interesting, because the common argument I saw was that, you know, AMD probably has just as many issues. It's just that Intel has the larger market share on CPUs. So that's why they're like, you know, kind of like Windows and Mac, whereas, you know, Windows is getting hit a lot more. Intel's getting hit a lot more because it's more interesting. For um, sure. But I mean, these things are... Like, there are similar concepts across both, and AMD has gone out and published that they're not vulnerable to this class of attack. Um, I'm just going to look if I have the link to AMD's actual response. I don't have it. Oh, AMD made a response? Yeah, they actually <laughs> indicate, like, their site to indicate that they're not vulnerable to these attacks or, like, those sorts of attacks in certain ways. Yeah, AMD... Oh, okay, that makes more actually sense. I thought you meant, like, a response. response. Okay. Like, it, well, it was a response to, uh, like, these specifically. Like, to Fallout and everything. Okay. Oh, which is just the uh, speculative behavior in AMD microarchitecture. So, you know, this was pretty much right after we got the notice about those about the MDS attacks. And I don't have any quotes or anything pulled up, but essentially they go through and it's AMD processors are designed not to speculate into memory that's not valid in the current virtual memory address. Uh, so that's just in this thing, but they kind of run through all these different speculative attacks that happened on Intel. You know, therefore AMD processors are designed not to forward data to other speculative operations when the data is not allowed to be accessed. Like they just work through everything in this paper, uh. So while there absolutely, or there very likely is that aspect of, um, Intel being kind of the more popular target to hit, there is it's also the an architectural thing. issue where AMD has made certain design decisions that Intel hasn't, uh, that maybe gave Intel an edge, but now Intel's kind of taking the hit because of these vulnerabilities. So basically, AMD Master Race. <laughs> um, I suppose so. But yeah, that is interesting that it's not only researcher bias, then it is actually some architectural differences. Um, yeah, like, I mean, that's not to say that other things wouldn't be found in AMD. Like, I do think that research bias, you know, can definitely have an impact here. But I don't want to, you know, discredit AMD at all for the fact that they have made just the right design decisions in some of these where... You know, it's not going to speculate across certain boundaries. Which is absolutely a valid criticism. Like, why would, like, you shouldn't speculate across security boundaries. That's asking for issues. Asking for these types of issues. Yeah, <laughs> which I think exactly. people realize after Spectre and Meltdown. Uh, yeah. Do you have anything else you kind of want to say about the issues themselves? Because otherwise I kind of want to hit on performance and the timeline stuff. Um... Yeah, I was. I think I've pretty much touched on everything. I do have some more technical details, but I don't yeah, want to go I mean, too deep people, into the white papers. If people want the real technical details, I feel like everybody probably has looked into it. Like this was not a uh, quiet release. No, no, not at all. So there's uh, definitely the, maybe we will, we will link to the white papers directly. Yeah, the white paper links will be included. I already have them in yeah. there. Um, I just didn't bring them up for showing on stream. Okay. Uh, but yeah, so talking about the performance then, uh, it's just kind of the 
updates that patch uh, these issues. Followed has a microcode update and the riddle stuff is essentially because hyperthreads share some of those buffers, they just can't be isolated. So you disable hyperthreading. Uh, yeah, I saw that on some of them. They were like, just disable hyperthreading, that'll fix it. Well, because there isn't really any other option. But, you know, yeah. Intel's response here, Intel kind of did this, um, their press release, I guess, about this. They have a kind of mitigation, like just talking about the the side channel issues. I'm just pulling the link up here. Okay. Uh, but I don't know if you read this. It's kind no, of like, I didn't. It's Intel basically talking about these issues. It's their press release ahead of everybody finding out about these. Um, talks about the mitigations, and they include some performance. Uh, just, you know, hyperthreading enabled. I found it just slightly funny that sometimes when hyperthreading... Um, I think on some of these had hyperthreading disabled... And the performance was, you know, like 101% when they disabled it. Uh, I'm trying to find, I think... 102%, I saw. Yeah, and that's this one, actually. That 102%, it meant it had better performance when they uh, disabled hyper-threading. That's, that's Obviously, weird. these are uh, very specific cases. Yeah. But, um... Yeah, I mean, Intel kind of goes over some of the performance. And generally, the worst that you see is actually one of the last cases is java running in like a data center server side java um ultimately when you disable the hyper threading you're looking at and the have the whole mitigations applied you're looking at the 81 percent performance or a uh what's that 19 percent performance drop that's a significant drop yeah. granted there's a lot of cases here where it you know, is a it's lot less. Even or, yeah. Yeah, like a lot, I think, like, for normal users, they're not, you're not seeing a huge uh, difference. Um, again, this one's limited performance impact for the majority of PC clients. 97%, 99% with some of these benchmarks when you have the mitigations in. Okay, this one does leave hyper-threading on, though, sir. Okay. Look at the one where they turn hyper-threading off, because that's the main fix. Yeah, so you're looking at, like, you know, 9%. Um, 9% on some of these. So, like, it's a significant hit. But in the majority case, maybe you're gaining performance, or it's just not that bad. I think for most users, this isn't going to be a huge issue. That said, you add on the Spectre and Meltdown performance hit, like, it adds up. It starts to stack, yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually, I think I saw some people talking about, you know, the stacking effect of that. Like, yeah, okay, there's seven. What's like, that? You know, I think I saw somewhere that people were talking about the stacking aspect of this, where, yeah, it's like, okay, right now it's only 7%, plus, you know, whatever the performance hit was from Spectre. And then they're, like, comparing, they were comparing the two different CPUs on how, like, it took down the level of some of the CPUs because of this performance hit. And uh, then you also have both. to, and then you also have to account for any potential future 
bugs because the speculative execution, I think, is going to well, be that new. I don't bug think plus. it's. I don't think it's fair to try and account for that right now. I'm once yeah, it comes I mean, off, it's not fair to say it. that. But I mean, it should be a consideration. I mean, it. it this isn't going to be the end of speculative execution. No, I mean, this is clearly just the beginning, and I think the timeline kind of shows that. Uh, when you look at the timeline for these issues. I'll just pull it back up on stream here. But one is that they held on, or Intel prevented them from talking about these issues for quite a while. It was over a year, wasn't it, in some cases? Or close to, yeah. It was either over a year or close to. But uh, just talking about the timeline here, starting off in June, just sometime in June. Uh, interesting note here, an intern at Microsoft Research uh found the uh uh the ms bds which if i recall correctly was uh bds that is the store buffer so that's fallout okay uh hopefully he's not an intern anymore hopefully he's actually working well that's what i think you know to get this kind of job uh yeah. that said i i don't know for sure i know he started working with uh he joined uh the riddle team but i don't know if that's just in response to just the paper or if he's actually joined uh view set yeah I, I don't know either way uh you know in june that was found yeah i just saw meltdown kind of skipped over that but 28th of march uh was the other was the last riddle attack or the first one depending on how you look at it oh um, yeah you know, 28th of March, and then we don't have this release here until this week, pretty much. You know, last week. Yeah. I am kind of wondering if we're going to start seeing more attacks aimed towards AMD in the future. Um, Possibly. I yeah. mean, there is definitely the aspect, as you've mentioned, the bias that Intel is kind of the big player. That said, AMD has been gaining market share. Yeah. That's what, yeah, that's what I was thinking of. As AMD grows bigger, as it starts to steal more of the market from Intel, it, I wonder if we start to see a shift in where these attacks like are headed. Especially if we see AMD gain some market share on the server side. Yeah, because that's, that's where they're like the lowest, right? Intel's the most common for servers, right? Yeah, they're Z online. Yeah. Um, that said, it almost seems like, you know, if this came out in June, had they reported around like June and August, I think this would have been a lot more damaging to Intel than obviously they held it off for almost a year. So on the timeline thing, like it really seems like Intel might have been trying to stall because like it's not until November. So first of all, ViewSec, I'm saying View. I don't know if it's VU or if it's View, but ViewSec kind of just flows nice. Uh, they reported the first riddle thing in around the 12th of September. Um, and then they later identified the other three. Or sorry, the first one, this was uh, Fallout. Or, uh, and yeah. then they had the other two. Uh, anyway, um, on the 12th. And then they submit a paper. I assume uh, uh, Gregory saw that paper and then they kind of talked about their research efforts mm -hmm. uh, after discussing common findings for the first time in November. So they didn't know about each other. It seems like until around November. So, you know, like 
several months after it was initially reported there. Like, nobody knows about anybody until ultimately uh, it's May 1st, which is where Intel gives the okay. Busek allowed to share by Intel May 1st with their all the academic finders. So that's the zombie low team mainly. They had like this huge team. Uh, looks like uh, they were able to share with a few other people. But it took a long time for them to be able to share about these findings. And that's something like... I mean, as much as I want to respect a company's dis- desire to keep something things secret until they've gotten a patch out, mm-hmm. I think there should be, like, when there are these duplicates coming and there are researchers kind of looking at the same areas... They should be informed about each other. Uh, one, so, you know, if they are doing kind of the same research, multiple people can uh, look at it. Like, so they don't duplicate each other's work. They can work together or decide not to, but that should be the researchers. So um, you think Intel should have been responsible for for facilitating that? or No, I just think that Intel, well... Yeah, I do think Intel should have mentioned that, hey, there are these other researchers who found something similar. Okay, that's a fair point, yeah. I'm not going to say they have to. I don't know. This just seems really suspicious on Intel's part, just because it took so long for this to come out, this timeline. Oh, yeah, they're they're just, they're mitigating the market hit, which I'm actually curious. Did you, I didn't look at it at all because I didn't really care too, too much, but uh did you find like see any information about how much this like uh these attacks being published hit Intel in terms of like market stocks or um, anything like oh, that? Oh, I don't know what it would have done now, but like the other link I showed before with their that video, the mitigation stuff, yeah. they were downplaying a lot of um the impacts of this. Okay. Um I've already kind of joked or mentioned the hyper-threading issue and the performance, but one of the things they've definitely emphasized how there are no known real-world exploits of it, like of this being found in the wild. Uh, but they also make mention just, you know, real-world exploiting would be a complex undertaking is the actual phrasing they use. And obviously what we see from the zombie load videos from the MDS videos is it's not or at least not all of them are complex undertakings. Yeah, some of them yeah, seem to be they're trivial. Weaponized. They're weaponized. They're, they're ready to go. So, I mean, yeah. I think that's Intel definitely trying to downplay the issue here. I don't know how this impacts their stocks. I don't think we're really going to see too much on that. Like, I mean, there might be some really quick initial movement, but long-term it'll probably bounce back, or we're at least not really going to know until close to the end of the quarter. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, can you think of anything else that we missed with uh, covering these attacks? I think we've hit on pretty much everything. We've hit on what matters. Yeah. I mean, it'd be cool if maybe for the, like, I'm not saying we can for sure, but maybe for the next episode we can get somebody who is more familiar with, like, the lower level CPUs and we can try to get them on. I don't know if that can happen, but we can Well, that can just be another video, too, but... um. Yeah, or that. We can discuss that possibility some other point. But yeah, I mean, I just want to end by mentioning, like, I think Intel's handled this poorly. We don't have a lot of information about how Intel handled this, but that timeline is really suspicious to me. Yeah, that's fair. 
so you don't you don't feel bad for Intel then? <laughs> well, not no. like no. no, no, I don't care. I, I <laughs> wow, I'm on an I AMD just... machine. I don't care. So am I. So, <laughs> oh man, poor OpSec. Now we're gonna get attacked. Um, yeah. So we'll move on to the the takedown that happened uh, last week. So I kind of wish. Anti-mass... Um, actually, you skipped over. Did I? Like, yep. Uh, oh yeah, I meant to talk about the Stack Overflow. Yeah, okay, so we'll we'll get to that next. So yeah, we'll talk about the Stack Overflow for now. Um, yeah, so you, you, I think you linked this just today, so I didn't get to link or look too much into it. No, I um, linked it a while back, but either way. Oh, okay. Um, so I'm just this happened. Back. The original intrusion happened. There's not much to say here. This is an update on uh, what happened on May fifth, and essentially they give a little bit of detail here. Uh, development deployment of Stack Overflow. Uh, you know, it was deployed. It, uh, it contained a bug which allowed an attacker to log in on dev and then escalate their production access. Okay. They don't say how that worked, and that's something I'm really wondering. Like, what on dev lets them modify privilege privileges on production? Yeah, that is a weird bridge to cross. Like, especially since it's specifically a dev deployment of the Stack Overflow site. It's not like it was some other component of it like it was the stack overflow site had some feature that let them escalate production privileges so like i could imagine you know being pointed to the wrong database or something where something got updated i don't know that's kind of what it sounds like that somebody was able to like give themselves mod access or something on stack over like give themselves that type of escalated privileges yeah, uh, which I think is kind of confirmed just by the fact that only 250 users were impacted by this. So, you know, that seems like the number that somebody just clicking on names and stuff might be able to get just by hand, not some SQL injection or like some dump. Uh, but I don't know. The, the issue just seems weird. It's a dev deployment that had a bug that allowed this to happen. Like, was this an insider? I mean, it's yeah, who seems... has access to the dev deployments. Maybe, you know, their dev testers are, you know, uh, a lot more spread out and it's on the internet or something. But I don't know. There, there's some questions from this. On a whole, though, I think um, Stack Overflow has kind of done a good job with this report. Like, there are still questions. I was going to say something. Uh, I mean, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I was, I was just going to say it doesn't get too... T- yeah, we keep... Yeah, overlapping but... each other i was just gonna say it doesn't get too technical but i was gonna say yeah it, it definitely like it's it's a good report it lays out everything pretty well yeah like it seems like they've done the right steps here you know uh they talk about exactly what they did as part of their steps in response there they terminated the unauthorized access of course conducted their detailed audit of it uh, remediate the issues. So obviously you have to figure out where the issue is, remediate it. Uh, but then they also mentioned here they've engaged a third-party forensics and incident response firm to assist with that remediation. Mm-hmm. Um, and learn, which I mean is a good step there. You know, don't just trust your first party. Like here's what we did, and we have all the inside information. Get that third set of eyes or second set of eyes looking at it. Uh, so I think that's a good step on their part. And of course, the precautionary steps, which again, you know, secrets are exposed, just cycle them. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, for those of you just listening, there wasn't too much, uh, like, at, at least according to this report, there wasn't too much compromise. It was mostly just like 
uh, IP addresses, uh, potentially names and emails, but like no passwords or anything like that. And it was a very small number. They say approximately 250 public users. So doesn't seem like it was a huge breach. Um, but when I was reading that part you were talking about with the uh, third party forensics or whatever to come in, that kind of makes me wonder if uh, like that lends credence to it potentially being an inside. Uh, I don't think so. I, I would I recommend in general um, that third parties are brought in for stuff like that because just in general, um, unless you have a really well-established incident response, which I don't imagine Stack Overflow would. Like, I would imagine, yeah. when I think about having, like, a well-established incident, like, there's kind of your incident response of just something happens, you've got a team that's, like, the emergency team ready to respond to it. There's that, and then there's kind of the level of incident response that uh, someone like Target has. Um, you know, someone like Target, literally world-renowned incident response, obviously because they have, like, a lot of the physical stuff, too. Um but like their whole forensic stuff is very well known and mm. so reaching out to kind of the specialized group i think is just the right answer in general when you've had an actual compromise okay just as having like it could be a hint of that it's just it's something i would reckon i would recognize as just being good practice unless you have that really well-established forensics team uh, that's beyond just the steps of like a uh, emergency response. Okay. Uh, do you think we'll ever get the technical details of this? I think probably not. But no, and I mean I don't think we really need to. I mean, yeah, we I don't mean, always breach, need. So. We don't always need all the details. Like, I mean, I like having the details. So it's always great to be able to look and kind of examine the actual exploit. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to reporting the incident. I think everything that we really need is here. You know, it's a bug. Allow the attack to do X from you know development here and escalate their production privileges. Yeah, yeah. Overall, not not a huge breach, but still, I think it's a it's a good report. I feel like more uh, security incidents need uh, reports written like this. It's it's laid out very well. It's not overly long. It's it's well, brief, but like covers what it needs to. I mean, I don't, I mean, the quality of the report's just meh. I mean, it, like I said, it's got the information it needs to. Hey, it's, it's better not... than some, which we'll get to later, at least in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, all so. I'm really saying there is, it's a report. I'm pretty sure now they legally have to report that, you know, users were compromised, data was compromised. I think that is a legal requirement for companies now. Somebody can correct me if I'm wrong about that. Uh, but yeah. nobody did last time I mentioned it. So it's like, it's not an amazing report. It could definitely be better. I, I don't want to sing their praises on that, but I'll give them the praise on their response. Uh, just on what they lay out for what they did is pretty much exemplar of what, you know, the response should be. Terminate, figure out what happened, remediate. Give your statement. Obviously you don't want, or... It would be less than ideal to need to give your statement while it's still like an active attack. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, bring on the third party as like another set of eyes and to help out and all of your cycling of secrets. I mean, I just, I yeah. wanted to kind of call them out as like, you know, good job on that. The report itself definitely lacks some information. 
but yeah, I think I think we can kind of just move on to the okay. Uh, I mean, it's it's about a takedown, but it's more about just the anatomy of a uh, uh, cyber criminal supply chain. I, I don't know. I mean, it was just an interesting little write up from Wired. I was hoping Yanti would be on to kind of talk a little bit about uh, this yeah, aspect. I can say that too. Yeah, I was, I was really hoping it was going to be on. Um, but I mean, apparently. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, let me see. Yeah, uh, I was just noticing that the banking malware that they talk about was discovered back in 2016. So it's not like... The well, discovered bank- and dismantled back in. Or, oh, sorry, I'm reading about Avalanche uh, that was dismantled in 16. Uh, yeah. So apparently it's like this banking malware is still being used today. But um, like apparently the response, like the, the DOJ and the Europol response to it is fairly... Like it's to the 2016 incident. It's not to anything that's happened like this year or anything from what I can see. Uh, apparently they've arrested five. Uh, apparently there was like 10 people involved and they arrested five and five more on the run. Uh, and the other interesting thing too is they were all from like different countries, Bulgaria, Georgia, Moldova, Ukraine. And <laughs> so, Russia, several Russians. And Russia, of course. So, you know, it's it seems like a pretty like it's, yeah, a so spread out I actually kind of want to talk about that a little bit because it's yeah, it's a little bit. It's not weird, uh, but essentially you've got the developer Russian who created it, um, created the malware, and he leased the malware to this Alexander guy who's from Georgia. He's kind of he's the one that's actually kind of the lead of this particular campaign. Um, the developer seems like you know he created this, he leased that. End of story. Wasn't really involved with how it was being used. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's another guy who basically rented the bulletproof infrastructure. That's the Avalanche network that's mentioned. Uh, the bulletproof hosting infrastructure, I should say, if you're not familiar, just essentially hosting that rejects all of the all of the legal threats. Just they just keep hosting your content and don't care what you do. Yeah. Um. So then there's the guy that just kind of hosted that. He hosted like 20 other malware operations. Uh, just kind of interesting about him. He was arrested in 2016 and then eluded capture since a judge released him due to a mistake in his charging documents. Now, I don't know if um, the mistakes in this document were like procedural and therefore like his detention was illegal or his detainment was illegal. Or if it's like the paper accidentally said he should be released and they release them. Uh, they don't actually say in here which it was. I just, when I read that, my immediate thought was his paper just like, uh, you know, somebody, ho- like the handwritten piece of paper release name and like gave that to the judge and the judge is like, okay, seems legit. <laughs> um, I mean, it, given how it's written, it could have been like a procedural thing that meant that he couldn't be detained. But at the same time, he also fired on the police that came to arrest them. Uh, they mentioned that he fired on them with an AK, and oh. he was still released because of the mistakes of the charging document. So, with whatever happened there, either way, he ran the bulletproof hosting infrastructure. Then there was uh, Edward, a guy from Moldova, who wrote a cryptor for this, um, which is also kind of interesting. So, I can understand, you know, some legal action being taken from the bulletproof infrastructure because you know very much they know what they're doing again the developer we've kind of had that discussion 
before when we were talking about malware attack. But yeah. writing the crypter, it it really depends on how it's being used. But you know, is the person that writes the crypter liable for the tools that are being crypted? Because I feel like to some extent you should be able to uh, prevent that liability. Just you know, by pointing out you're just the service people use it however they want. And I don't know to what degree he was involved. Um, yeah. Or to what degree he knew how it was being used. Obviously, when you make a crypto, you kind of know what it's being used for. Um, yeah. Like, when you advertise that you're going to crypt something, like, you know it's kind of being used for a malware campaign. Like, there aren't a lot of legit uses. But, oh no, it just seems like it's not... It's not quite directly related to the banking hour, to this whole campaign. It, I don't know. It's just interesting to me is whether or not it'll hold against them. Um, yeah. Like, I mean, obviously you kind of know what's going on, but I feel like anybody that's running a crypto should be able to establish it in such a way that they're just that service and they're not getting involved with what the people are actually doing with it. Yeah. Um, and then the other parts of it, obviously the guy that did the spamming operations, couple guys did account takeovers once they got credentials from the malware. They log in, try and transfer money, and then the guys actually doing the laundering and the money mules that were actually pulling money out. Um, yeah. That's kind of the rest of this whole supply chain that's brought up. The main thing, though, is most of these people just seem to have been basically freelancers did some really small part did their job and that's it obviously like the yeah. guys laundering money and the leader of the group overseeing like the operations and like the control and all that that's different but like the cryptor the developer like that's i'd even point towards the spamming like, those seem like they're almost freelancers just doing that little bit of work and that's it. Like, the, it's not a tight-knit group, is what it doesn't sound like. Yeah. So I did just want to bring up, apparently this Avalanche uh, Bulletproof Hosting service hosted uh, services for more than, like, 20 different malware campaigns. That yeah, I had mentioned that, that. They were hosting oh, okay. for I did, I 20 malware operations, so. or more than um, 20. But yeah, the, the, the most interesting quote from the article is, um, uh, I think it's near the end, to sum up, criminals cooperate across borders and we will do the same so does this is this the first major case of um cooperation across this many countries in terms of i don't think so i can't imagine okay. it is i mean because i think the article did mention that it kind of sets a precedent so I was like just, it's I, maybe I, noteworthy because there is such a large group and i yeah, don't they do say unprecedented example of international cooperation so yeah like i but i don't think it's the first by any means of a lot of it like even a larger group um, okay maybe it is but i mean interpol definitely interpol is a lot of countries cooperating already so uh maybe it's yeah. because some of these aren't interpol countries i don't know what countries are actually part of or work with interpol yeah, anti'd probably know. God damn it. <laughs> oh well. Um, well, I, I'm sure uh, Google would also know. Google might also know, that is true. Um, okay, see, I'm actually really surprised by this. 
Interpol is actually like almost every country, apparently. 193, 90, 94, 194 member countries. Oh, sh I, I, I did not. Yeah. So I just don't think there's a lot of uh, information sharing with Interpol as I was thinking. Maybe I'm thinking of yeah. Europol or like the Euro police. Uh, so what is the difference between Europol and Interpol? Do you know? Is it like what's? Well, they're different organizations. I mean, they're different organizations, but like, why? Like, what does Europol do to? Well, there's Interpol probably well, there's probably more information sharing on like within Europol because it is a lot fewer countries. There's more trust between the members. Yeah, I that's mean, fair. I don't. I mean, North Korea isn't part of Interpol, but China is, for example. You know, how much information okay. sharing is the U.S. doing with China on police matters? Probably none. <laughs> or little. I mean, I could imagine there little, being some, yeah. but the Interpol is just too big. Either way, that's kind of a side topic that I don't yeah, it's just something to I want jump to... down to. But... It's just it... something I wanted, like a personal curiosity. I don't really know much about the like those types of organizations, so I was just curious what, what the difference was between them. Yes, uh, Div Moment. Just because they're members doesn't mean they cooperate. And that's kind of what I was getting at when I saw the member account. Uh, I mean, sorry, can you just repeat that for a sec? I, uh, Dibma I... just mentioned that just because they're members doesn't mean they cooperate. And that's kind of what I was getting at. Um, when I saw that member count, as I just pulled it off for Interpol, it's clear. Like, at that size, they're members in name, but yeah, they don't necessarily cooperate. I thought that Interpol had a lot more cooperation. Uh, okay. But granted, most of my knowledge of Interpol is from, you know, TV shows, so how accurate is that <laughs> going to be? Yeah. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I was as I first mentioned Interpol, I was kind of thinking, well, okay, they probably interact a lot more. I thought Interpol was mostly Euro, so maybe I'm thinking of Europol, which okay. probably interacts more. I don't really know, though, uh, so I can't comment on that. That said, I mean, these are definitely, to be fair, in terms of the cooperation... A lot of these countries are some of those countries that you would look at as being less cooperative. So Russia, of course, Ukraine um, are definitely two main countries that you see campaigns coming out of. Mm -hmm. uh, Bulgaria, too, a little bit. Uh, like, it's still reasonably common. So, I mean, you've the fact there was cooperation across these countries, maybe that is reasonably new but i mean there have been other campaigns hot but yeah i guess i just don't know but yeah maybe we can ask Anti next week if he's if he's back well, um, he lost his chance to comment yep so we'll talk about the whatsapp so that's probably the other uh probably the other big news that happened was the, the uh, WhatsApp i didn't i don't think so I saw it mentioned quite a bit. What I, I mean, it was mentioned. I think the Windows one's bigger. Okay. Because Windows fair. was actually calling companies to let them know they should patch. Okay. So I actually, I didn't know that uh, the Windows one was that big. I obviously, I read into the report and stuff and it, you know, it's obviously a big issue, but I actually yeah, heard well, about the WhatsApp one more personally. So that's just like an anecdotal thing. Um, so yeah, the, the WhatsApp uh so i don't think i'm not sure if this article goes too 
deep into the technical details because there actually wasn't too many technical details released. Yeah, the details aren't out there, but I mean, it came NSO group. I'm not familiar with them. Apparently, it's this Israeli spy firm that developed this WhatsApp exploit. Uh, what's interesting is this firm denied having any impact on choosing the targets. They didn't de deny building the exploit, just that they didn't choose the targets. Because this was targeted against some high-profile activists and political uh, dissidents. So, like, there, there were some serious people targeted with this WhatsApp exploit. And yeah, this firm denied having any involvement with the targets, but... No, no denial of actually creating it. They didn't say they created it either, but they didn't deny it. Yeah. So basically, uh, some surface level details on it. So there, here's the Facebook uh, CDE page, but it's basically a, a buffer overflow in the VoIP stack. So by sending some of these special, they call them SRTCP. I'm not sure what the SR stands for. Yeah. Well, so uh, it is the. Um... Uh, the secure, so the S is just secure, or probably TLS or SSL or whatever, um, and then it's the RTP control protocol. Oh, okay. Yeah, so there's, you know, some of those packets, I guess, or whatever packet was targeted has a, a buffer overflow in one of the handlers or something like that. It doesn't go too deep into the technical details. Um, yeah, as far I as I can it... tell, this is about as technical as it gets. Yeah. I mean, I was a bit interested that a like a classic. Uh, actually, they do just say a buffer overflow. So I was thinking stack overflow, but they don't directly say stack, do they? No, and I mean, even if it was a no. stack overflow, it still can be a lot more complicated than just, you know, just overriding rip or something. Oh, definitely, it could even just be uh, like I know sometimes, you know, there's a bit of a mix up in the nomenclature, and sometimes like. Just like an out of bounds write in an array or something is called a buffer overflow too. So well, yeah, I we... think a lot of people just buffer overflow is just as catch all for all the memory corruptions. That said, yeah. I'd expect an advisory to be more technical and more accurate. Yeah, so we we can't get too much into it. I would like to, uh, but one thing I did find funny was uh, there was a, a tweet uh, put out by Azeria. I think that's how you say it, and. Um, they actually stealth edited this out of the article, so you can't find it anymore unless you go into like the Wayback Machine. But uh, originally, they had a quote from this uh, Alan Woodward, a computer scientist researcher, whatever, uh, cybersecurity researcher. And he gave a quote that said, in a buffer overflow, an app is allocated more memory than it actually needs, so it has space left in memory. <laughs> it's just a really terrible description of a buffer Once overflow. Once you're a cybersecurity researchers. <laughs> Uh, it was, just, it, was uh, it buckled me laughing but uh... I mean so the thing is um, I could see I, I I'm actually having trouble coming up with a charitable explanation on this what yeah, I was going to point think. towards was this, when people call it a stack overflow and then refer to literally the stack growing so large it overflows the acceptable memory area like, a completely different thing than when we talk about a stack overflow as being an overflow in stack memory. Um, yeah. I was going to, you know, try and rephrase this in that sense, where the app has more memory than it needs. But, like, I, I can't. It's... I can't come up with a charitable explanation, like, for how this is relayed to a buffer. Like... It's hard to play devil's advocate here. 
I mean, maybe an app is allocate. Maybe you know he's using al. You know, allocate is the wrong word for an app. Uses more memory than it actually needs or actually asks for. It. I can't do it. I I really can't. I've I've tried here. It's especially like. I mean, I can't. You know, the allocate used that wrong, but he claims he's a computer scientist. Yeah. And a cybersecurity researcher. So, like, you know, he should at least be familiar with what a buffer overflow is. Yeah. And he also, he has prof in his Twitter handle and he's verified. So, and yeah, I think he, I think that's like a university. I don't know. He seems like he's a, like a university professor or something like that. But I, I can't back that up with like, uh, hard proof. Don't but click on his profile. Yeah. We can, we can do that. I mean, the, this, this seal seems like, like University yeah. of Surrey. Yep. So oh, yeah. Surrey uni- Center for Cybersecurity. So university professor. Uh... <laughs> I mean, so I guess one thing to be charitable here is if that was on the report, you know, it definitely could have been something added by an editor like, oh, we should talk about what a buffer overflow is. It might not have actually been him. That's a fair so point. So we should mention, as we're making fun of it, somebody did this. It may not have been his actual writing that ended up there. Obviously, it does pass through editorial teams. He might have signed off on it, but he also just might have been like, yeah, everything looks good here. Not totally reading it. Just like assuming they kind of know what they're doing, you know? Um, I don't know. I'm just saying maybe. It's definitely a very questionable statement. That's definitely a lot more, you know, that's something I didn't consider. That's, you know, that's a good devil's advocate, and I'll give it to you. It's not bad. Um, but yeah, that that was just a funny point to bring up, but it does seem like um, they they did find evidence of being used, like, weaponized against, uh, like, high-level targets. Yeah, it was definitely used against a small number of high-profile activists and political dissidents that they mentioned. Um, obviously, they don't mention anybody in particular, but they do mention that. Um, it's there. One thing that the report, it has this emphasis on, uh, you know, this could inject malware onto phones. And one, that, that is just kind of the fun thing about this issue, is it didn't require somebody answered the call on WhatsApp, just that you called them. Um, so it didn't require that user interaction at all, which is always fun with some of these exploits, but... Uh, Oh, no, they mention it as though this is some, like, freak incident. I think is the word. Or is the phrasing that they use. Sound like it's a freak. Yeah, this sounds like a freak incident, and... I don't know if I agree with them. Like, I don't know what the stats are on how often WhatsApp is exploited. Or, you know, Skype or anything else that uses, like, uh... Any sort of VoIP. Or really anything, but, um... I can't imagine that it's that uncommon for these applications to be targeted. Looking, I mean, yes, they are mobile applications, so there's definitely a limit to where you can look for uh, code execution. I just can't imagine that it's that uh, freakish of an incident. Maybe it's just that you don't hear about it all that often, because when these are found, they are being used in very targeted ways. Yeah, I just I can't imagine it being that unheard of though. Um, yeah, it definitely sounds like downplaying it. 
Well, but yeah. this is wired. Like, they don't necessarily have a reason to be downplaying it. Like, this were a WhatsApp or Facebook uh, write-up on it. Yeah, I'm just looking at the quote, though. The It has the, the this person's name. I don't even... I, I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Um, and then Crypto Phone. Uh, what is... I'm not familiar. Crypto Phone. I'm just trying to think. I don't know if that's necessarily a wired person or if that's... Yeah, I don't know. I didn't see any mention of that anywhere else in the article, so it just seems weird. I don't know if... Did, we, did I miss something, maybe? Uh, uh, CEO yeah. of German Secure... Oh, okay, so see, that makes it more like... I could see why he'd want to downplay it, right? Because, like, that's... Maybe. He's a CEO uh, of that area, so... I trust that quote. But if they're, I don't know if they're a competitor to WhatsApp or something. If they're a competitor, they'd want to, you know, play it up to get people yeah. off of WhatsApp. I don't know what crypto phone is. Either way, I never heard of it. Um, either way, I guess I would just point out, like, I don't think this is as freakish of an incident as the whole report kind of makes it seem. I think that this is something that it's definitely a juicy target. Uh, there's limits to where you can go with it just because, you know, mobile applications are generally written in like a higher language and just call out some of these lower level handlers. Uh, that's said, one other just interesting, I guess. It's kind of expected if they share some common library across all these, but like it basically impacted, I assume, every platform that WhatsApp is on. Um, you know, you've got the... WhatsApp for Android, WhatsApp Business for Android, WhatsApp iOS, WhatsApp iBusiness for iOS, WhatsApp for Windows Phone, and WhatsApp for Tizen, which, before reading this, I think I've maybe heard of Tizen once or twice before, but I had to Google it anyhow. Yeah. And, I mean, it's essentially, it looks like what Samsung used. It's like this Linux embedded OS or... um. It's run on phones, but it sounds like uh, one of the big places it's used is Samsung Smart TVs. Yeah. Uh, so, like, you know, all of their platforms, I assume, were hit by this. <sighs> yep. And, I mean, WhatsApp is such a good target, right? Just because I think it's it's pretty popular for journalists and stuff to use. Well, it's so. going to be used by people that don't want their communication spied on, so... Yeah, it's a perfect target. Yeah. Um, but I think that, that sums up WhatsApp. Um, I remember with Angry Cat, uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, routers, I think. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. Cisco, right? Yeah, that was uh, and... a Cisco issue. And this one here that you're about to click on is a Linksys smart Wi-Fi router. Yeah. Um, I mean, the severity of this one is definitely nowhere near as bad. Essentially, there's this JNAP page action that is accessible without any authentication that exposes some information. Um, it exposes information like the MAC address of every device that's ever connected to it, uh, device name, an operating system. So it's sensitive information. Uh, like, I absolutely won't argue not sensitive, but on its own, like, I wouldn't care all that much if somebody knew, like, oh, no, you know my MAC address of my phone. Oh, no, what are you going to do with that? At the same time, 
I think when you start thinking about the government, say, using something like this, mm-hmm. oh no, I they know this MAC address belongs to ex-political dissident, and they've been on my Wi-Fi. Um, or targeted phishing would be another place I could see this being, where it's like, you know, they know a bit more about your operating system, your device name. You know, so when they call pretending to be from Microsoft, they have more information now, for example. Um, so while on its own, this is basically just unauthenticated to leaking this information. On its own, doesn't seem that bad, but I think this information could be used in a very targeted way if you're running yeah. one of these routers. Yeah, that's what I was going to say was I think the biggest risk uh, of abusing this. So the the biggest risk would probably be amassing a database, right? Like just trying to hit as many routers as you can with this uh like with this exploit and just build a database of Mac addresses, device names, router, like uh, IP addresses, and just like have like a massive, you know, thing that anybody can search looking for leverage or anything like that. And like you said, where it ties into governments, that could be more useful. Um, so I don't know if Google still offers <laughs> this as something you can actually do the lookups on. I think it's been long removed, but I remember they used to have this thing. I don't think I ever used that. Like, I'm think this was a long time ago, like, just after Street View became a thing, maybe. Maybe Street View had been a thing for a little while. Either way, this was pretty, like, at least before 2009, probably closer to, like, 8, maybe. I, either way, where Google would, with their Street View, they would sample the Wi-Fi data, uh, just all kind of the waves passing by them. They would just sample that data as their Street View cars also went by. Uh, so they would know the MAC addresses of all these Wi-Fi routers that they saw. Um, and they could correlate that with where it's located based on the fact that they've got a physical vehicle moving by it. Um, mm-hmm. And then you could do lookups. Um, I don't think it was a published API, but like Google would do the lookup uh, to get location information based on the MAC address of the router that you're connected to. Um, and I'm just kind of reminded of that with this, like the type of information that you could possibly do with that MAC address. So in that case, you get the MAC address and you could eventually figure out like a physical location for where that MAC address was. But something like this, you know, if they're collecting all that information, you can maybe find out about where people are traveling, like what routers are moving between. That does require like they're connecting to all of these different routers or multiple different routers. Um... I don't know, but collecting like a big database of it, I don't see that as being terribly useful unless you're trying to collect statistics. Like, I mean, you're not. Oh, no. What are you thinking? If you you collect this big database of all this information, what do you do with that? Like, just uh, from like an intelligence point of view, um, like, you know, if you have a device name, like I think they mentioned one here, like Matt's uh, MacBook Pro or whatever, like stuff like that, right? When you start mixing in people's names and being able to associate them with Mac addresses, I think um, it could be useful for more targeted campaigns. Well, yeah, but that's what I was saying like, earlier. Like, I think this information could be used in a very yeah, targeted like I think way. It could, I don't yeah, think like you, you need could... to uh, collect everything. I think... Um, if you know somebody's running it, you can get all the information about people that have connected to it and use that information uh, to do something. I don't think you'd need to collect 
everybody, every like all of it off the internet. And I think they mentioned like the twenty five thousand that they mention are like those that are internet accessible. I might be wrong about that, but I yeah, think that's is. what they're referring to. Like those are the ones that you can literally get, um, like access to right now. Which, by the way, why do people do that? Like, why do you need your router exposed to the wide internet? like that why well i mean a lot of i i don't know i'm assuming this is a modem and router to be honest but i mean generally speaking even if it's not your modems connects directly to your router there's nothing in between there too assuming your modem isn't also a router um your router is your line of defense in a lot of cases yeah. I mean, it's not a special thing for your router to be exposed to the internet. The fact that any sort of panel is accessible to the uh, external network to the internet is a different thing, but that's more yeah, configuration. Yeah, that's what I meant. I, I'm, I might have misspoke. Uh, so not so much your router just being hittable, uh, which, I mean, I think that comes down. It's probably just a default in Linksys, to be honest. They probably just have some, like, control your Wi-Fi from anywhere from our smartphone application. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, I do want to say that I think this article tries to make it out to be more dangerous than it actually is. I think it's upplaying it a little bit. Yeah, but I mean, Um, everybody does that. Yeah. I mean, I thought, like, there's there's definitely some points to take away from this. Like, I I really don't... uh, Oh, I didn't notice this before. They actually have a little bit of a table showing... Yeah, countries that have uh, vo- like routers that are exposed that are vulnerable, and of course, most of them the United States, eleven thousand. Um, but yeah, I think the biggest thing is is just like, I yeah, these panels shouldn't be remotely accessible, except for in and especially like this information shouldn't be provided. Well, I mean, I think it's just the request. Yeah, shouldn't be unauthenticated. Yeah. So now we'll we'll move into the Microsoft. Yeah, uh, which I think this one was kind of the other big news for this week. I mean, the WhatsApp one was also definitely worthwhile news. Uh, but Microsoft in the last week has definitely been contacting companies about this. So one, this only impacts, um, I guess, to be clear for anybody just listening, uh, basically this is a vulnerability in remote desktop services on like Windows 7 and older, basically. Um, So Windows 7, like Windows Server 2008, Windows XP, Windows 2003, old systems had this uh, remote desktop services. I'm pretty sure they've run by default. They are on the network by default. And there is a remote code execution vulnerability in them that is accessible unauthenticated, which essentially ends up meaning that if you have a network that has a bunch of Windows XP devices on it, say a bunch of point-of-sales devices which like to run really old systems, if something can compromise that network, it can worm its way along every machine and infect them without any authentication, without anything kind of stopping it. Yeah. Um, So one thing I did want to point out of this article is they they did seem to try to put a bit of a, a PR spin on it. Uh, they had um, let me just find the exact uh, piece of text I'm, I'm referencing here. Um, 
Let me see. Yeah, customers running Windows 8 and Windows 10 are not affected by this vulnerability, and it is no coincidence that later versions of Windows are not affected. Windows invests, or Microsoft invests heavily in strengthening the security of its products. <laughs> well, it's I mean, like, Microsoft has, especially if you're looking at Windows XP in that time period to now, like Microsoft has taken, a, actually even Windows 7, which is one of the newer ones impacted by this, Microsoft has stepped up their security quite a bit since then. Yeah, I mean, that that's true. It's just like the way they worded it in here. It's like they really want to like, you know, put some positive news <laughs> in the advisory. Yeah, so it seems like they just kind of threw that in there. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, it's... I mean, this is, I think, a really serious issue it's not for like your average everyday user most people just aren't running these old systems anymore it might be for kind of those more tech illiterate people that are still running that windows xp machine uh because it still works you know i could still check my email uh, <laughs> yeah. but really for companies that just are still running things because they still work this can be a huge issue because it is wormable. It is without any authentication being required. It, like it's yeah. it's a serious issue there. And like I said, Microsoft was definitely contacting companies, being like, you know, update or patch this as soon as you can. Uh, because obviously, com companies that are still running Windows Seven, Windows XP, Windows Two Thousand Three, they're probably not the fastest to update that said on the flip side there are a lot of issues on these old windows machines already and i think for the most part like you're not seeing these like i mentioned point of sale systems they might be running a really old version of windows or i think somebody showed a picture of a atm that was still running like windows 98 or 95 but the thing is, they're so isolated from any real network that, you know, there's minimal exposure to malware, even yeah. though they are already vulnerable. And that definitely weakens the position here of how severe this is. Like, I'd still argue this is a very severe issue, and I've seen a lot of talking about it. Like, I've mm -hmm. seen it come up a lot more than the WhatsApp one. Not as much as MDS, but... um, Yeah, I mean, it's... Once again, if you're running Windows 7, just get a newer version of Windows already. Well, I mean, let's be fair. Windows I, 7 was. I mean, like, I'm talking awesome. about desktop, like home users, not companies. Companies, I think, have a bit more reason to stay on the older systems. Uh, just, I mean, I still would recommend people update, but with the companies and they run on the older systems there's a huge cost involved with doing the upgrade and a lot of the times it still works just fine yeah i mean like i one thing i can see with windows 7 is it was an awesome operating system i'd still say i liked windows 7 uh in its prime more than i like windows 10 so there are definitely a group of people who like like actively use windows 7 just because they like it so much more so I don't I think want that's to play a good a reason bit. to. <laughs> I mean, stay maybe on not. It, but, I mean, I really know, liked Windows Seven. I really like Windows XP. Well, Windows XP less so. That's too old. That that's 
going past the threshold, I think. I think it's fair. Well, I wouldn't use, use Windows. Windows. Yeah, like, I don't think people should still be using Windows XP, but I'd say get off Windows 7, too. Even if you like it, there's just such a security loss by using these old versions. That it just, it's not warranted, no matter how much you like something. Once it hits that end of life, where it's not getting support anymore, it's not getting anything. Um... Because, I mean, the biggest source of people getting owned when we're talking about, outdated like, home users software. is outdated software. Yeah. Even if you like that outdated software, it's still a huge security risk for you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fair summary to it. Um, I just wanted to point out that Dibmasa in the chat reminds me of McLaren needing a 20-year-old compact laptop to maintain its F1 supercar. I don't know. Do you know anything about that? Have you ever heard about that? I'm not familiar with that incident, but I mean, that comes down to the business usages. And that's where I can definitely see it happening a little bit more. I mean, at that point, though, when it's, you know, needing that 20 year old laptop, I'm wondering what the specific requirement is. I'm guessing that 20 year old laptop probably has one of those cars you can slide into it or whatever um, that you just can't get on machines now unless you're on a desktop. And thus, you know, for more portable, they need that really old laptop in order to do anything like practically with it. I don't know what the case is in particular, but I don't know. Companies, I can understand it a little bit more um, than desktop users. Like if you showed up using a 20-year-old compact laptop as like your main machine... One, I mean, you probably couldn't do this stream, but two, <laughs> uh, you probably would have quite a bit of malware. But in that case, how often does that compact laptop attach to anything other than the car? Probably not very often. Yeah. Yeah, I, I never really heard about that, so I just wanted to see if you heard anything about it. Yeah, I'm not familiar with the details of it at all, so I can't comment on that. But okay. I can just say, like, it's... The biggest issue for people is updating software. You just have to bite the bullet and do it. Um, I yeah. wish more people would have done it, because Windows wouldn't have needed to push their updates so hard if people would just update themselves. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to... I, I can't say anything because I actively block Windows updates because I get blue screens a lot when I do updates. So Well, I had my one laptop there that it would update every time. It would always tell me, hey, there's a new update available, and I would postpone it as long as I could. And it would automatically update, and it would fail to boot. And then it would it would try and reboot, and it would fail to boot, and then it would undo the update, and then it would tell me there's an update available. <laughs> and it would do it again and again. It did it at least like 20 or so times before I've just stopped using that laptop. Yeah, my old laptop on Windows 7 had a similar issue boot loop when you did an update. Well, it was like, please wait or whatever. It, not the same issue. but So it would way. restore itself back to its old version when the boot failed. Um, and then it would tell me there was an update and it would do everything again. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, my whole point is like... I get it when companies use old software. As an individual, just update. I really don't care if you prefer a system or not. If you prefer the UI or something, just deal with it. Update. And companies should also update. I mean, this issue, though, because it is pre-authentication and on something that's exposed to the network by default, 
Like, that's just, like, every machine running on your network can get owned. So if one of those point-of-service terminals gets owned, all of them can be owned through it. Yeah. Uh, they don't really have too many details about the actual exploit or anything, so we can't really talk about that. But this is the type of vulnerability. They use the example of, you know, it could spread in a similar, to, similar way to WannaCry. Um which, I mean, WannaCry was doing more IoT exploits, but, like, it, that's exactly right. Like, network things that are just vulnerable by default. Yeah. So, that pretty much concludes all the articles we have. I don't yes, know if that's you our, have anything else to add on to that. No, that's our last O-Day for the week, is... Last O-Day for Day Zero. Uh, yep. For this for this episode. <laughs> well, for Day um, Zero of the week. For Day Zero of the week, yeah. So... Yeah, that that'll we'll wrap up this podcast. Um, we should be back again next week. I think you're. Yeah, you're we'll be back next, next week. Yep. Okay. Um, we'll we'll have to see if Auntie will be able to hop on next week, and uh, yeah, so we'll see you guys next week for episode eleven.